What a beautiful message and song, and what a beautiful word, and what a beautiful messenger. Just terrific. Love that. Uh, Martha and I were talking this week. You know, we've been married now 38 years plus, and we've been doing this together for 38 years, a little longer than that, because way back when we were in college, we were on some of these youth revival teams together, and Martha would sing, and I would preach, and I figured up conservatively, counting the years that we were in evangelism, traveling all over the country, and the world for that matter, conservatively, Martha has sung, and I have preached, we've done that together, not just be in the service together, but she'd sing, and I would preach at least a thousand times in our years together. Everywhere in little country church houses to big stadiums with 20,000 people from Japan to Eastern Europe and everywhere, and it's just marvelous. We do begin to think alike, and, and uh, we even begin to sing alike. Uh, have you heard me lately? <laughs> no, that, that hasn't rubbed off for some reason. I'm uh, so glad that you're, that you're here today, and I tell you what I want to do this morning. We're going to do something a little different. I want you to imagine for a moment that this is a large courtroom. Now that is not my favorite metaphor or analogy for the church. It is a good one, but it's not my favorite. I don't think the schoolroom is the primary message. I don't believe that an exercise room is. I don't believe that a courtroom is. I believe the best metaphor, picture, symbol for the church is a hospital. We have emergency care and long-term care. You have preventive medicine. You have physical rehabilitation. You have all of a, a lot of ingredients involved in the metaphor of a hospital that describes the life of a church. But this morning, for a few moments, I want to emphasize the courtroom aspect of the Christian faith. And so I'm going to do that by the help, with the help of this chair. What I want you to do is to let your imagination kind of go into freewheeling. And I want you to pretend that you are in a courtroom and that you are the defendant. Each one of us individually. I, you, we are all defendants in this courtroom. Why are we here? Why are we in this courtroom? This is the witness chair, by the way. The judge seated on the bench above us all. For those who are listening to this tape around the world, this sermon by tape, what I'm pointing to right now is a stained glass window. That's the stained glass window of Christ that is behind our choir. He stands there as the judge. Here this chair is the witness chair. Here you and I are. You are seated at the defendant's table. I am there. You are there. I am only up here as a spokesman to describe this divine drama that is taking place. Your case has been called. Unlike Franz Kafka, that mysterious mystical writer from Prague, Czechoslovakia, who wrote so many interesting works, one of them entitled The Trial, he felt unable, this man in the story that Kafka tells about, the man had been accused of a crime, but he could not bring the crime, he could not bring the case to court. They could never resolve the problem. And he lived all those years under the threat of this indictment, but he could never resolve the problem. And he felt the turmoil of this accusation without any capacity for the alleviation of it. Now, you are not going to have to go through a Kafka-esque kind of experience. This morning, your case has been called. My case has been called. We are here in this grand courtroom, all present to watch these proceedings. You sit at the defendant's chair because, like I, like you, like every human being, we are all guilty. 
You say, well, Buck, I haven't killed anybody. No, I haven't either. But I've hated. And the Bible says whoever hates is a murderer. And possibly the only reason some of us have not murdered is just fear of retribution or punishment or lack of opportunity. But we've hated in our hearts. And so as far as the moral law of God is concerned, we are guilty of murder. We may or may not have committed the overt act of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. I have not. But if you and I have lusted in our hearts, as far as the moral law of God is concerned, we have broken that law. Now to be sure, to carry out those feelings, those desires, that hatred, the consequences of our guilt can be disastrous and harmful to the lives of others. But insofar as guilt is concerned, all of us are guilty. The moral law says that all is sin and comes short of the glory of God. We have not all sinned alike, but all alike is sinned. And when the word sin is mentioned so often, we think of some gross list of inequities like murder and like stealing and like incest or like other sins that we might think of. Think of the sins of the attitude. Think of pride or of prejudice. Think of criticism. Those attitudinal sins that can bring such hurt and havoc into human lives. Those are sins also. Also, not only think of the things that we have done that we should not have done, we didn't want to do, we were not at our best, we were caught in a weak moment, whatever the physical circumstances might be that surrounded the infraction. What about those events when we have not done what we knew we should have done? What about the good we have not done? Not just the bad we have, but the good we would do in our hearts and had purposed to do and planned to do and prayed to do and started to do but didn't do. Sins of omission as well as sins of commission. So we are arraigned and we are indicted by the moral law of God. Not only that, we are indicted by our own conscience. Now I may put on a good act to you. I may give a good outside show to you. I may carry on externally in a very respectable way. But I, like you, know down deep inside of my heart that I have sinned. I have sinned against God and I am guilty before Him. My own heart condemns me. In those quiet, private moments of introspection, every one of us, really honest with ourselves, we'll try to rationalize, we'll justify, we'll think about all the extenuating circumstances that prompted us to do what we did, but every one of us knows that in the final analysis, we're responsible for our actions. And I thought things I should not have thought, and said things I should not have said, and done things I should not have done, and not done things that I should have done. And my own heart in that honest moment of spiritual reflection confesses, I have done it. You take no Fifth Amendment in this seat. And in this court, you have no Fifth Amendment privileges. We all must testify. Our own hearts testify, even if we do not want to say anything with our lips. And then, seated there at the table with the prosecutors is the chief prosecutor himself named Satan. The very word means accuser. So the accuser stands there and points at me and at you, seated here in this witness chair. You are guilty of breaking the moral law of God. You are guilty of violating your own conscience. You have sinned and you know it. I have but I've tried to get an attorney. And I've, I've employed an attorney. What attorney have you employed? Well, I employed religion. Marvelous firm, big firm, profitable firm, worldwide firm. I've employed religion. And they have not been able to do anything with my case except get it postponed and delayed. They've never won a case at the judgment bar of God, not one. They've never gotten an acquittal. 
They've gotten delays and postponements. Maybe even at one time or another gotten a new trial set. But religion, however much you may pay them, however large the retainer you might have given, organized religion, religion, the legalistic moral system, they cannot get you an acquittal. They cannot get you a not guilty verdict. They've never won a case. They've got a lot of clients who are still hoping against hope that somehow, some way, maybe religion will be able to alleviate the indictment that is against them, but it cannot do it. It never has done it. And so I, like you, like the whole human race, sits here in this chair and says, I'm guilty. And so I've decided to plead my own case. What I've decided to do, Your Honor, if it pleases the court, is to call some character witnesses. And I want to ask them, what about my sin? And what about their sin? Satan objects. He objects to everything. Fortunately, the objection is not sustained. I can bring my witnesses. Your Honor, I'd like to call a, a man who lived about uh, 3,500 years ago. He was a preacher. He was a human being, just like I am. And you have his deposition before you. It's recorded there in the court record under the listing of Micah. I want to call this man Micah to come sit here and give a character reference about me and help me to answer the question about my own sin. And so Micah comes. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, Micah the prophet, I do. I'll tell the truth. Well, tell us, sir, what about sin? Micah? I'm going to translate for you. He spoke Hebrew. He probably could have spoken English had he lived in our day, but I'm going to stand here beside, behind him and as his translator read you from the record the di divine deposition taken of this man and read you what he said about my sin and about yours and about his and about the whole human race. Listen to it. The last chapter in this marvelous little book in the Old Testament, the seventh chapter of Micah. Listen to these words. Here sits the man sworn to give testimony. And I read his testimony. And he says this, gesturing toward the judge behind us there on the throne. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of my inheritance? You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Bugner, you, 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 every one of us there, defendants, your sins, my sins, our sins are buried in the depths of the sea. Those dark, fathomless depths, God says, through this preacher and through this divine word. That's where your sins are. Buried in the depths of the sea. I love the beach. I've been on it many, many hours of my life and many years of my life. I will always love it. In fact, I'm glad they're going to have a sea in heaven. They're going to have a celestial sea because I've already got me a condominium working there. I don't have one here and I don't, uh, and, and anywhere, but I've got one there on the celestial shore and I don't need a very big place because I'm going to spend a lot of my time outside. 
in the water at the sea playing golf? Does it make you feel better to know their golf course is in heaven and you can play and get a tea time and never gets dark? Wonderful. I'm serious. I think it's going to be a most delightful experience that we can imagine beyond anything we can think or imagine. I was thinking about how much I love to be on the ocean and be around it. And in Hawaii, a few months ago, we visited Sandy Beach, one of those great spots to us as a family. And on Sandy Beach, this wide expanse of beach, the um, lava cliffs there where the bowels of the earth spewed out through Cocoa Head and made that island, and those big lava cliffs are there. And right out there on the side of Sandy Beach is a big piece of lava about four times the size of this chair. It's close enough to the ocean that when the tide is in and when the waves are running, come up and wash over that big lava stone there. Many of them are so far away that the sea never touches them. But you walk along that beach, and I've walked along it dozens of times in my life. And I noticed something that's been there all along, but it never gotten my attention. I noticed that the sand in front of that stone, that huge rock, the sand between the rock and the ocean is stained. It's black. Do you know what's happening? That sea is absorbing that rock. With those cool, tender hands of incessant love, it goes about dissolving that lava and it stains the sand. And that beach is made from the action of that water upon those rocks. Now, I'll not be able to walk sandy beach long enough for that rock to someday be dissolved and absorbed by the sea, but I'll be able to come back for a visit from my condominium on the celestial sea and watch it disappear across the millions of years that are ahead because the sea absorbs everything around it and the sea of God's grace absorbs your sin. It's gone. Buried in the depths of the sea. Another word, Michael? Yes, but I'd like to remind you of Sheila O'Gahan, an Irish lady. More near your generation than mine. But Sheila read my words one day and wrote a poem. It touched me to think about it. Maybe it will help you. Sheila was having a hard time in life. Her moral life was confused, and as a result, she was physically ill. Desperately so. She took off from work and decided to go to the sea, hoping to have her spirit and her mind and her body refreshed. She was in great turmoil, maybe like some of you here. And she sat on the shore, and she opened her Bible to the seventh chapter of my deposition. My word, and she read some words, Buckner, that inspired her to write a poem. She didn't know she had the ability to write poetry. But she wrote a poem that you might enjoy hearing from Sheila O'Gale. I have buried your sins in the depths of my fathomless sea. All your sins and transgressions, whatever they be, though they mount up to heaven, though they sink down to hell, they shall sink in the depths and o'er them the waves of my mercy so mighty and free shall wash them all away for I have buried your sin in the depths of the sea. 
Thank you, Micah. You're dismissed. Your Honor, if it pleases the court, I'd like to call Isaiah, contemporary of this man, Micah, that princely aristocratic man who lived in Judea, preached in Jerusalem. I'd like him to come. Isaiah, tell me, do you have a word about my sin? Yes, I do, and I stand behind him to read you from his own record, the 38th chapter, and he says these words. In your love, he is speaking to the judge, to the great creator himself, to the great lawgiver himself. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. You have put all my sins behind your back. And whichever way God looks, your sins are behind his back. When you come up to him and remind him of your sins, he'll say, I don't remember, for I don't see them. But yes, I told you all about them. I know you told me all about them, and I put them behind my back, and wherever I go, I do not see them. I see only you. Not what you have done or what you have been. I see only you. Your sins are behind my back. They're gone. They're forgiven. But if I may, I think it would be appropriate at this point to call Simon Peter. He's a friend of mine. We've gotten to know each other well here in the celestial city. Simon Peter knows something about this back turning. Call him to the witness stand. If I may be excused temporarily, yes, do. Simon Peter comes and sworn and said, yes, I want to tell you about this behind the back business. Do you remember when I was going so great and saying so many good things about the Lord and then I said something horrible and I, I got stuck my foot in my mouth and messed up and the Lord said, get behind me, Satan. Listen, everybody, you've got to understand what happened that day. He was not talking about me. He was talking about that part of me that was controlled by something beyond my best. He put my sin behind his back. He never turned his back on me, never for a moment. He said for that part of me <clears throat> that was so despicable and so mistaken, he said that that was to go behind me, behind his back, never to be seen again, but he never put me there. He kept me always as the apple of his eye. He looked at me even that night before he marched off to be crucified and he came looking for me on the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. He never turned his back on me, Isaiah. He never turned his back on me, Buckner. He never turned his back on you. He'll never turn his back on anybody. He's put my sin behind his back. And let me read you from my own words what he has done for me. And I turn now to the letter Peter wrote entitled 1 Peter, 2nd chapter, beginning with the 22nd verse. He begins by saying, Isaiah, I quote you here. I hope it's okay. I quote you and I gave you credit for it. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Isaiah, I took that right out of the 53rd chapter of that great book, that great deposition that you gave. He committed no sin and no sin was found in his, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Isaiah, that's your word. God gave it to you and through you, he came, gave it to me. He took all of our sins. And Isaiah, you know what that's referring to. That's referring way back there to what God told Moses and Aaron. That's referring way back there to the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus. The third book of the book of Moses. What's in the 16th chapter? All of this refers to that. He bore my sins. He suffered for my sins. He took my sins. 
What God was doing way back there was giving a picture, giving a symbol, giving a representation of what he was going to do for man. And he did it through the law. He did it through the ordinances. He did it through the Levitical system. And he told Aaron, he said, now Aaron, here's what I want you to do. Aaron, the high priest under Moses, Aaron, here's what you're to do. You're to bring all of the people together and you are to take a bull and you are to sacrifice that bull and you are to offer that bull as cleansing for your own sins. You begin with yourself, Aaron. You offer that bull as cleansing for your own sins. And then after you've done that, you bring two male goats, two male goats, and you take one of those male goats and you sacrifice it upon the altar. You collect the blood from that goat. You carry that blood into the holy place as the symbol, the metaphor, the picture of the forgiveness of all of the sins of all the people. The blood of that goat is symbolic of the cleansing, the sacrifice, the death that their sins, the sins of all the people might be cleansed. Then when you come back out, Aaron, you take the other goat and you stand there with all of the people around you. You stand there and you place your hands on the head of that goat. And you say that you are transferring all of the sins of the people to that goat. And you put your hands on the head of the goat. A person then in charge of that goat takes that goat and goes off out into the wilderness and loses that goat in the wilderness. It never finds its way back. It is lost forever. Its remains are eaten by the scavengers. And that, my friend, is the background of scapegoat. A biblical reality. He transferred symbolically to the head of that goat all of our sins, and he went off out into the desert. That's exactly what Peter is saying that Jesus Christ has done. He has come to take all of our sins and carry them out into the desert of his own death so that we through him could have our sins put behind his back, out of his sight, gone, forgiven, forgotten forever. And now I call a man who knows more about the law than any of these other men, for he appealed it himself. He was a practitioner of it himself. I call now Saul of Tarsus, better known now as Paul the Apostle, and he comes and I share you his words, with you his words. From the second chapter of Colossians, which we read earlier. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. First go. Blood, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul is saying, seated here in this witness seat, I tried the law, I tried religion, I tried legalism, and I came up empty and hopeless and frustrated. And then I saw it, that when Jesus died on the cross, he took my sin. Notice this divine retaliation. Here is sin, yours, mine, nailing him to the cross. So what does he do? With this incomparable love, this fathomless love, he reaches out 
and pulls the very sin that's executing him by his own willingness and will, but nevertheless, he reaches out and takes that sin that is executing him and he pulls it into himself. And like a drowning man, he carries it into the depths of death. He reaches out and takes that which is killing him and he kills it. He takes it to death. And he rises from the grave, but your sins do not. He buried them in the depths of the sea. He put them behind his back. He sent them into the wilderness. He died for them so that you and I might be freed. That's why we sing in that marvelous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, that verse. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this wonderful thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Sacrifice. And I bear it no more. Scapegoat. It is well, it is well with my soul. And my friend, what God has come here today to do is to heal our souls. And in healing our souls and our spirits help heal relationships and maybe even our bodies to heal the totality of life. Your Honor, I rest my case. I've called four friends and I have no other word. And it gets more silent in that courtroom than it is here right now because this is that courtroom. And do you know what happens? The judge himself comes down from the bench and takes a seat here in this witness chair. He has come to give his testimony in your behalf. He takes off the robe of law and we see that beneath it his essential nature is the robe of love. And he sits right here in his own courtroom and hear about him the people of the world the prostitute that had been dragged before him in the streets of Jerusalem the woman in Simon the Pharisee's house. The lying, cheating, conniving businessman Zacchaeus. The underhanded tax collector Matthew. The thief being executed on a cross. And Buckner. And you, and you, and you. And he looks at us and he says, Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. It's right there in the record. Seventh chapter of Luke. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sin, your faith, Always put those together and you'll go in peace. 
Martin Luther said that when he looked at his sin and himself, he didn't see how he could ever be saved. But when he looked at Christ, he saw how he could never be lost. If not Martin, or Buckner, or Micah, or Isaiah, or Peter, or Paul, or any of us, it is Christ that saved. Your sins, many, your faith will save you. And you'll live in peace with God and with one another. You know what he does then? He pushes back the furniture in the courtroom. They bring in the band and the refreshments and the courtroom come to banquet hall. It's party time. Celebration time. My sins are gone. My faith has saved. Thanks be to God. Would you trust Christ? Would you let him take your case? Would you let him witness in your behalf? Would you let him forgive you, change your life, bring peace beyond all understanding? Would you come into the life of this church and join hands with us? All of us, convicted felons, forgiven by the grace of God. And to help us share that good news of unconditional love with the whole world. That's what church is. Not an advocate, but a witness. Not a judge, but a friend. Would you come, trusting Christ, moving your life and membership into this church, if you're a Christian, desire to be a part of this congregation, just as I am, without one plea, hear that? But that thy love and thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. I'll be right here to receive you. Come on.